0: Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done.
1: I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. The idea that you can have working copy sitting in the background, not needing to run a server, and then run everything else in your text editor or your IDE has been the best way of writing a flat site for me.
0: Well, welcome back to another episode of iPad Pros. I'm excited to share this episode with you all about front-end web development on the iPad. I interviewed Craig Morey, who wrote a very in depth article about this topic. uh, As a lot of improvements have happened over the past year, in 2019, the iPad saw a lot of big improvements through new applications and new abilities over USB C to really address front end web developers' needs on the iPad in some big and substantial ways. And we dive into his article. About all the different apps that are now out, some different USB C things that can now be done, including using a Raspberry Pi locally over USB C without an internet connection to do web development on the iPad. Some really cool stuff has happened this past year, and we dive into that topic in depth on this episode. With that said, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Every review goes a really long way in helping others discover the show. And if you want to financially support the show, even a dollar a month through patreon.com slash iPad Pros, that also would be greatly appreciated. Thank you if you currently or have in the past supported the show in either way. With that said, here's my interview with Craig, all about front-end web development on the iPad.
1: Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thank you so much for asking me on. Absolutely.
0: I came across your article that you wrote pretty in depth on kind of the struggles in the past and how it's progressed with front end web development on the iPad. So I wanted to kind of have you on and kind of dig into this article and share, you know, what's happened in the past year and why the iPad is now a much better platform than it was this
1: time last year. That's great. It's a work in progress, I would say.
0: Can you first introduce yourself and how you use the iPad?
1: On a regular basis. Sure. So my name is Craig Mori. I'm on Twitter as Pixel Thing and as It's a Data Thing. I've been a, a front-end developer for uh, many years, but now I'm kind of moving and specialising in data visualisation and analysis. I kind of use the iPad in. Every scenario that doesn't involve sitting down for a four-hour block and actually doing some real coding. And increasingly, that means if I need to do any bug fixes or any work outside of the office, then I can do that on an iPad now as well. I use the iPad on a fairly regular basis now, but I'm not yet ready to put my MacBook onto eBay. Okay, next decade.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ten years in the iPad and the next ten, maybe that'll happen. Exactly. (laughs) So, front-end web development. First off, for those that aren't a web developer, what is... is
1: UI elements, or what are you working with here? That's a pretty good way of actually just uh, breaking it down, really. If, oh gosh, uh, 20 years ago, there was one job role, and that was something awful like webmaster. And I think I had that job role. And then along came ASP and PHP and uh, UX and every other acronym you can possibly imagine. And essentially, the role started splitting. And I think it's Pretty much been splitting every six months ever since that time front-end developer is that the catch-all term for someone who's doing the code behind everything you touch on a screen so that is the UI elements, that is the the interactions, any animations. When we talk about a back end developer, a backend developer is dealing with the, the business logic, dealing with databases and quite often SysOps and other things as well. They're kind of interesting fields because web development is building a house on shifting sounds. You've got five different browsers that you are constantly changing. You've got different screen sizes and different device types that are always changing. On top of that, you've got about twenty different JavaScript frameworks being launched every day. If that kind of challenge, if that sounds like a challenge, then you're probably ready to be a front-end developer. If it sounds a bit scary, then you're probably better as being a back-end developer, which is a bit more stable.
0: You mentioned all the different screen sizes. Working on the iPad, developing on iPad websites, is that a challenge in making sure things work across the board? Or is, if it works there, it's going to be great elsewhere because everywhere else... Is more complicated and it should just scale up naturally from there.
1: Well, it's a good question because traditionally we've worked on a desktop computer and every time we need to do some quick responsive design, then we go into some sort of responsive design mode, whether we're in Chrome or whether we're in Safari, just to see what sort of sizes things look like, whether they can be touched, whether they can't. The funny thing with dealing with an iPad is that we can't go bigger than that screen generally. Right when we go smaller, then of course it's a fairly good estimation of what an iPhone or an Android phone is like. What I'm trying to get my brain into is that I've always told other developers that that they shouldn't rely on the developer tools in Chrome to do their responsive design anyway. We have quite a good device lab at work. So when we get to a certain stage, then let's actually test this website out, this little project out on real devices, because the, the difference can be massive. And so I'm trying to get my head into feeling that before I used to think of the iPhone iPad as one of the devices I tested on, and now I'm trying to get uh, thinking about whether I need to think about desktop or keyboard and mouse-driven computers as the sort of device that I'm testing on instead. You can get quite a long way with being able to deal with responsive design on the iPad. If you do do that, then you've got to then break off and do some real device testing on some real big screens, keyboard and mouse, and smaller screens as well. It's just another device to add to your device lab if you're thinking about about making things for desktop computers.
0: Am I right in thinking there currently isn't a way to hook up to an external display on iPad and it being optimized for that big screen to kind of mimic what a big 27-inch computer would see? They're mostly mirrored at this point with the testing tools for
1: that? Not in a reliable way, really. You had Anders on who worked on Working Copy recently, and he's actually got a fairly good way of of projecting a preview onto a big screen. But still, it's not the same as trying to imagine it on a a desktop screen, not least because I'm not sure if it's 4.3 or if it's actually 16.9. I haven't tried it myself. One of the best tools to use is an app called Inspect Browser. The best of its abilities kind of tries to replicate Chrome DevTools, and so it does have a design area in it where you can set up different size screens, and it's really good at scaling up and scaling down. So you could create a screen that is the equivalent of the the six K new XDR screen. Now it won't be 6K, but it will be scaled down and you can see exactly how the website will appear on the screen. Yeah, that's maybe something that I could suggest to them actually is that if that could be then projected onto a bigger screen, then you'd really be halfway there. I hadn't thought of that before, but that's that's quite a good idea. Right, cuz
0: you can optimize for external displays before we dive into kind of the nitty-gritty stuff. Can you just broadly share what's improved in the past year? Where
1: it's now something that can be mildly recommended? Is that kind of the verbiage <laughs> you do's? I think your projects or your work kind of falls into a certain criteria than actually it, it's surprising how productive you can be on an iPad. Uh, I've been doing one of these roundups for the last three years and last year it was a bit of a slog. It kind of felt like uh, yeah, I was really beating against something that wasn't getting anywhere. This year it feels like we've made quite a lot of leaps. What it's come down to is uh, three main things that have improved this year. The first being iPadOS and iPad OS has really taken out some of the niggly problems that we've had with file management, with workflow on iOS in general. The second thing is Safari with its desktop browsing, as they call it. That has actually opened up a whole load of other tools because although I... Speak about web development as if it means sitting in a text editor all day. There's generally a lot of other tools that are involved in the process of making a website. Now that could be Google Analytics, it could be Jira, uh, it could be Confluence, a whole load of project management tools, Basecamp or, and others. But up until now, the use of those things has been a bit clunky on an iPad. Sometimes they have provided an app, but the app is almost always slightly out of date in relation to the web interface. Having Safari as the main tool to interface with all of those web services has really made my life a lot easier. The last thing really is it's small developers. It's indie developers. They have filled the gaps in so many extraordinary ways. Quite a lot of the community around web development on an iPad has actually found some really instructive and interesting ways of carrying out workflows that hadn't Existed before things like Raspberry Pis. It's uh, quite extraordinary thinking about it as being a like a, an offboard server, but one that you carry around in your pocket. So those three things, I think, have really taken off this year. Okay,
0: and before we dive any further, what? Kind of websites do you build? Like you build both in, I guess,
1: personal and a day job as well. It sounds like. So in general, my daily job uh, involves a lot of different websites, including uh, those that are based on Vue.js, VueX. There's some React work. There's quite a lot of legacy sites involving jQuery, but also there are flat websites. My latest work is actually involving ESX modules, which allows me to build complex sites. But just by using HTML, CSS, JavaScript, no node, no nothing, that has actually allowed me to do a lot more on the iPad than I would have previously, because as soon as you introduce node or a a command line, then things get a little complex.
0: Okay. Yeah, and we'll dive into those complexities in a little bit here, because I know there's some ways around them, but uh, probably not as fun as working with flat sites, as you just mentioned. (laughs) That's true. So something that's changed since the last year is USB-C has been around longer, because time just keeps moving forward, and more and more (laughs) (laughs) hardware accessories are able to be introduced with that. How has that
1: improved in the past year? Well, it's kind of interesting because there was no 2019 iPad Pro. But although the 2018 iPad Pro is kind of uh, two years old... It's kind of had a hardware upgrade this year anyway because that USB-C ecosystem that they always promised was just around the corner is actually finally happening. If you look through Twitter, people are actually starting to say, God, why isn't this in USB-C? It's almost like the demand for USB-C, and now there's starting to be a lot of the supplies of um, things in USB-C as well. So in essence, your 2018 iPad has had a hardware upgrade in 2019. Suddenly, the USB-C ecosystem that they always promised us was around the corner, is actually starting to happen. So suddenly we can plug our iPads into hard drives, USB sticks, 5K monitors. We can plug them into Raspberry Pis. We can plug them into a lot of different power supplies that don't have an Apple sticker on them. And we can also walk into a shop and buy a USB-C hub and expand that one USB-C port to a whole load of different ports and connectors that we have on a, on, on a MacBook or we're missing on a MacBook right now. So... That upgrade has actually meant a great deal. I'm kind of in the, the position where my old 10.5-inch iPad Pro was serving me absolutely fine. And then funnily enough, I was just preparing for this podcast and just wishing I could have two USBs out of it at the same time. If I had a 2018 iPad Pro and, uh, and a hub, I could do that right now without even thinking about it. It's really getting there. So
0: Raspberry Pi, you mentioned earlier, there's now a USB-C version of this. And as I learned from Anders when I spoke with him, you can actually plug a Raspberry Pi directly into an iPad Pro and be talking with it as, like, a local little server,
1: totally offline. Have you done this? And, like, what's that experience like? I only wish I had um, because I've only got a lightning iPad. I haven't actually tried it out, but I've been following it avidly because the first time I saw this uh, was by the the brilliant Brent Jackson. And this was back in June last year. And I think it was pretty much the first time I'd seen the use case of a Raspberry Pi with an iPad. But what he'd done is he'd taken about three steps further and figured out that not only could you plug in a Raspberry Pi with a USB-C cable into your iPad, So you could essentially charge and run your Raspberry Pi with power, but also over the same cable, it could act as Ethernet over USB 3. That means that he doesn't need to set up any networks, any Wi-Fi. He could run it completely offline. It's a bit of a genius process, really. The only distance in between your iPad and that Raspberry Pi is thinking of it as an external drive which really, if you're running something like Secure Shellfish, that's all it is. Uh, But at the same time, you've got a command line. You can command line into it. You can run your own servers. It's a bit of a a genius way of doing it. For me, I've got a, a Lightning iPad, and therefore I can't quite have that level of simplicity. But at the same time, all I've got is I've got my iPad, I've got a Raspberry Pi 3, which runs absolutely fine off of an Anker 10 milliamp hour, 10k milliamp hour battery, and setting it up as a a Wi-Fi node on the network. And that in itself is quite simple because then I can just drop it into my pocket and be working on the iPad as if it had a command line, as, as if it was running a full Linux server.
0: And the initial configuration of that Raspberry Pi, is that something a Mac is needed to at least initially get that up and
1: running? for my setup yeah it was definitely required at that point not least because the initial setup of the raspberry pi is a heck of a lot easier if you have a monitor of some sort if you actually had access to a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse then you could get all of the the setup done but quite often it's easier to just as easy to use a, a mac to be able to Get into the Raspberry Pi and then do that setup initially as well.
0: And that's the case as well for the USB C one where you're hooked up directly to it?
1: Definitely, yes.
0: Okay. And you don't see a future where a third party developer would create
1: like a Raspberry Pi setup app for that? Is that something that's possible? I think there's definitely a possibility that you could get a Raspberry Pi micro SD card that already had it configured as uh, being able to run the the network over USB C, and then you could probably plug it straight into the ipad and run it from there There, there's probably quite a a business plan in there somewhere
0: yeah because that's all you need right because that would do all the configuration right from the storage on there so you mentioned safari being one of the biggest upgrades and i noticed this myself with some sites that were just not usable and now they are Uh, what were some of the biggest ones that affected you as a web developer?
1: As a web developer that was always telling my team that they needed to measure more and then kind of moving into some of the data stuff myself, having Google Analytics work properly on an iPad was a a massive win for me. That's probably the the biggest and the the best one for me, but that's on top of, say, Google Docs and also a lot of the, the project management tools like Jira, like Basecamp that we've used with different jobs as well. There's still Still a few standouts. With some web apps, there's quite often cases where if you need to grab hold of handles, so you need to resize items. I'm thinking in particular of Google Data Studio or some items in Google Docs, then that's still a bit fiddly on an iPad. The assumption is that there is a mouse and there's a hover state. I can see in the near future that actually being fixed as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, it would be I'm curious to see where iPad OS 14, iPad OS (laughs) 2, will will bring us with, like, hopefully improved mouser and cursor support and all that.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see if that big round dot uh, gets any smaller once people start shipping and playing with the new bridge keyboards and such.
0: Another web rendering thing that you brought up in the article is that WebKit is kind of the only thing available on iOS and there's some apps that'll remote into a different web browser to try to get around that. That's how we got some flash browsers back in the day. Uh, <laughs> do you see there being a way for Apple to offer other rendering engines that maintain the security of iOS? I think that's kind of the reason they've used in the past for why it's only WebKit.
1: I kind of think in the end, it will probably come down to litigation, I'm sad to say, really, oh. because it's it's uh, it's the kind of thing that certainly Microsoft have and foul in, with in the in the past. the idea that it 's a security risk is understandable because browser is essentially a, a whole new operating system on top of an operating system. But at the same time, iOS is possibly one of the most locked down and secure systems when it comes to file systems, when it comes to sandboxes, when it comes to threading, that there is out there commercially available. So I'm pretty sure that if Google had dispensation to put Blink and essentially Chrome, Chromium, onto an iPad, then they could do it in a way that wouldn't actually compromise the security of an iPad.
0: Okay. Some different workflows that you discuss in your piece. The first is, as we mentioned earlier, needing to work with a remote server or virtual private server. And this is because you can't install different tool sets like you can on the Mac. Can you share some about these workflows
1: and what limitations may still exist over methods used on the Mac for this? A lot of front-end web development these days does rely on a tool chain of some sort. So whether that is Webpack, Gulp, Vuex, React, it, there's a whole load of different frameworks and different methods to create very complex websites out there today. The problem with all of those is that they demand some access to a command line. And when they say a command line, we're we're talking about a Unix or a Linux command line. Now, iOS is built upon Darwin. So Darwin is a Unix shell of sorts. But the trouble is, is that iOS does not allow any access to the command line at all. So what do we do with a, a development process that relies on a command line, but it doesn't exist on the device that we're using? Well, we kind of offshore it to another box and that box could be up in the cloud. It could be sitting in the room. It could be a Raspberry Pi. But either way, it has to be a Linux or a Unix box somewhere else apart from the iPad. So that's where virtual private servers come in, where you can rent a, essentially a Linux server on a per usage basis. I'm paying, what, six bucks a month for the ability to spin up a server anytime I want and run it and then be able to get into it with a command line and play around with it as much as I want. So those virtual private servers or local servers, they give you the ability to have full Unix box. You can install what you want, you can npm uh, node, you can do any sort of tool chain until your heart's content, and then you still get to use the iPad as the terminal that you are connecting with that box.
0: And in that $6 a month service that you're using, for instance, does it get wiped every time you're done or is that configuration get saved until you start paying them
1: it's kind of interesting because you can run it as long as you want or as much as you want so say if you were what uh, one thing i realized recently was that i was previously using prompt to get into the service my expectation was every time i stopped using it then it would disappear and that was because prompt of course would lose the connection after the app closed and there would be no access to a web server on that VPS anymore. What I've noticed in the last month or so is switching to using Blink as an SSH client, which uses Mosh. Now, Mosh is a, a variation on SSH. It just allows a connection to, a, to be very flaky and still stay up. What I've noticed is that using that, I've kind of gone away and days later found that Blink is still running. And that connection is still available. And so, any services that have been running on that server are still running. So, it depends on whether you can keep a constant connection to the server as to whether the server is up. If you do keep a constant connection, it does mean that it is carrying out uh, uploads and downloads. And so, then you might actually find yourself getting into the point where you're paying for extra services whether it's uploads or downloads that you weren't expecting but it does mean that you can keep a connection up as long as you want if you're using blink and mosh
0: and the way that works if your ipad reboots for some reason does
1: that sever the connection or is it still up unbelievably it seems to stay up uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> i i kind of say that because maybe i'm just not a command line guy and so i don't understand the, the inner workings of mosh it's been a surprise to actually be able to use blink and then find that the connection wasn't just up but closing it updating it reinstalling it and the connection would still be there i'm not quite sure how that works it does seem to be magic okay
0: and what's the level of friction
1: of doing it
0: through that method versus
1: using a mac to do this is it a big difference the thing is, once you've taken the opportunity to offboard your Unix server onto another box, so it could be a VPS, could be a could be a, a box in the room, could be a Raspberry Pi. As soon as you've taken that opportunity, then the difference between an iPad and a Mac is very very small because you're essentially using the, a terminal as a way of talking to it. You're hopefully using a Git client and a text editor or an IDE to be able to edit the content on those servers and so there's very little difference in between the two platforms the difference is that on a mac quite often you don't take that decision you will be running a local development on your mac and then only at a certain stage that you're happy will you be committing those changes and then moving it up to some sort of staging server where you can share the link around to other people to also be able to check it out okay and
0: the Totally offline way of working for these flat websites.
1: What's that environment look like? What's that workflow look like? It's fun, actually. It, I'll tell you, it was quite fun actually dealing with websites that don't use a tool chain for once, not least because of the complexity. One thing that every web developer will tell you is that every time they set up a website, they kind of set up a tool chain and they go, Great this is now going to be my toolchain that I'm going to be using for the next 20 projects. And (laughs) then they do exactly the same process when it gets to the next project, because there's always something to tweak. And the next project is always a couple of months down the line, and there's something new to try out. And what's the advantage of using a toolchain? They're required for what purposes? There's lots of reasons to use those toolchains. The main one up until now has been backwards compatibility. The ability to write JavaScript in a way that is modern, that has all of the the fluency, all of the modern operators and grammar of good ES6 or later JavaScript, and then still have the feeling that it can still run on the IE11. Because as soon as you're doing anything that has to go out into the wide world, and anything that has to be signed off by a client. And the truth of the matter is that very few public users will use IE11s, but a heck of a lot of clients will. And therefore, you need to get it working on their computers before they will sign it off and it becomes a real website. So, a lot of compilation so that it works on older computers is part of it. It also allows you to build in a smarter way so you might build css with sas or less or uh, other systems that actually compile down to css Uh, it also allows you to be able to pick and choose small wrapped applications from all over the web Uh, every time you want to add a date picker or you want to add some sort of small function into your system the chances are that someone out there has done it better than you that is going to save you a lot of time. And so the ability to combine all of these into your business logic so that out pops a great website that someone can pat you on the back and say, that was a really good date picker in there. And you go, yep, that took me three minutes to actually NPM into the system. That's all of a big benefit to a web developer.
0: And when you find a a tool chain... You'll be, saying in Safari on the iPad, you find it, and there's some link that you input into the
1: terminal that goes to the remote server, or how do you uh, actually do the in- installation? So if you discover a new way of working, and quite often, there's 100 of those a week, if you pick one that's a really good one, then all you need to do is you need to get that command line up, whether it's sitting on your Raspberry Pi or whether it's sitting on a VPS, and start npm installing quite often or yarn or yarn 2 as it is this week the way of actually putting those small packages into your site is quite often componentized into the simplest forms so that you can start using them in the quickest way possible if you want to switch in between two major systems so say we've got a site that was on angular and now we're going to do it in view from now on that's a bigger job but that's a, a separate process that's more like trains jumping in between two tracks rather than just putting another carriage on the back.
0: Okay, I mentioned flat sites earlier. What kind of apps are you using to build these sites? Is it just a couple? Is it four apps at a time you're dealing with? Or what's kind of the...
1: Ecosystem look like for that. Well, previously with flat sites, then the, the problem was running a server because one of the the biggest problems with iOS is that anything that's sitting in the background will be killed after three minutes, and so that means if you open up a server that any other of your apps is going to connect to. So, say you had an app that was an Apache server, you then open up Safari. You can be looking at Safari, you can be working your way through the website, and suddenly you'll get no connection, no server. That has historically been the the trickiest part of the whole process. And that has meant that a lot of apps, uh, whether they've been text editors, whether they've been Git clients, uh, a lot of apps actually start com- to combine a lot of functions into one. That means that your text editor might have a FTP client in it, or it might have an SSH terminal, or it might have a web server in it. The ability to combine several functions into one app will actually mean that you can keep one app in the foreground and you don't have to have any apps in the background that you know are going to be killed. So quite often my ecosystem works around having two apps at most, if I can, and it's generally around having working copy as the basis. Working Copy is a Git client, which allows me to check out my projects and be able to uh, collaborate with other people with those projects as well. But really, it's the core of everything that I do, because every time I finish any work, then I need to commit those changes back to Git. And if I am checking out any new changes that someone else has done, then I will be pulling them down from Git. Working Copy is so wonderful because it's always kept up with all of the iOS developments in terms of APIs. It was one of the first apps that allowed you to have a file provider uh, so that other apps could just see the files that sat in Working Copy as files that were in their own app. This sounds so strange even now because previously one app couldn't use the files in another app, which is a crazy way of thinking about these things. From a security point of view, it was amazing because these different apps have different sandboxes. But as soon as you try to string two professional apps into a workflow, the idea that one couldn't actually use the files in another was Pretty crazy. Working Copy kind of broke that in being able to allow other apps like Textastic, like and now with Play.js, GoCoEdit, uh, a whole raft of other apps, they can now just sit on top of that file system within Working Copy, which is great.
0: And you'll use working copy to actually write the code and preview it? Or is that done in a
1: different app for what you use it for? I have used working copy in the past as all parts of that editing process as a full IDE, you might say. So being able to pull down the code, check it out, be able to edit it, be able to commit it back and to be able to preview it. It has to be said that the editor within working copy isn't fantastic or isn't yet. I mean, Anders is always working on it. So quite often I am using a a third-party text editor on top of it. So that might be Textastic, which has always been fantastic. Recently, I've been using a lot of GoCoEdit. It just suits my workflow a little better. But the idea that you can have working copy sitting in the background, not needing to run a server and then run everything else in your text editor or your IDE has been the best way of writing a flat site for me. Think of working copy just as a, another folder that you're opening and that allows you to work directly on those files And so I could make, um, i tell you what the the biggest workflow difference is. If you're using Coda, then if you are making changes, then there are ways of committing those changes back into Git in some way. But you'll have to do that file by file, which means that you can tick the box. You can say that you can do it, but no one would actually enjoy doing that workflow. A a developer probably needs to work on 20 different files uh, all at the same time and then once all those files work together, then they're going to be pushing all of those changes back at the same time. The process of having working copy and Textastic or other text editors means that you can just do all the work that you need in that text editor. And when you're ready, just go back to working copy and here are your 20 files that you've edited. Give a, Leave me a message and your job is done.
0: And- As you're working with files, say you need to reference an image that you're wanting to display in your website. How is that actually done? uh, Because there's hyperlinking to the image, and is that something that's on the internet, or is it a local file on your iPad that somehow... When you upload it to Git and all that, it it magically
1: works? Or what's that like? If you're using images in your website, it's not that unlike how you use images on the Mac anyway. There's a fair amount of creation tools within iOS to be able to do that already. I mean, you can now use Photoshop itself. You can't use apps like Sketch, but there are apps that allow you to preview Sketch files. That allows you to maybe take those elements from a designer and be able to image those into screenshots that you could use as comp images for the first version of a a website anyway. Or you can take images from your photo album and be able to save them into a file system and just reference them in exactly the same way as you would with any other image. So slash images slash this is a fantastic picture of Tim jpeg and uh, it will work. Okay, very cool.
0: And then kind of to wrap it up, I just want to just highlight some of the apps that you mentioned at the end of your article that are pretty critical in development these days. And the first is Play.js. Can you kind of describe what this is and why it's so wonderful?
1: Yeah, I should probably have mentioned Play.js earlier because Play.js is the... It's the, the unicorn. We kind of came into this process saying you can't run Node. You can't run a command line on an iOS. That is a fact. What Play.js does is it says, no, actually, yeah, you can. What it's done is it's allowed you to run it in a slightly esoteric way. And uh, the developer tells a story about Play.js saying that, Actually, they they were trying to create an environment that lived within a sandbox that uh, allowed you to create a website with a a Node.js server. But as soon as it was submitted, Apple kind of came back and said, yeah, no, could you actually do it in a more iOS way? And it was that enigmatic. It was that vague. uh, And it was not very encouraging but bless him what he did is he went away and he's come kind of come back with this genuinely interesting way of dealing with it if you were checking out a project from git then this might not be quite so simple if you were making a project from scratch But generally it will come with a few files that say these are the the modules that I want to download and this is how I want to run my initial build. And if you have those two files, it's called play.js for a reason. You load up that project, uh, you can see all the files in the the bar on the left, and you hit a button that is marked play. And what happens is that a little dialogue appears. It says, ah, you're missing some dependencies for this. And it will start downloading those dependencies. And then as soon as it's downloaded the dependencies, run your little server, and then suddenly on the right-hand side, you'll get the results in a web browser on the right. So it's the whole process from taking a Node.js-based toolchain website, webpack, could be anything, to the point of actually running it locally on your iPad. It's brilliant. Now... There are a few caveats in that it's specifically built for running React and React Native and Node.js servers. The developer is a fantastic guy who's actually started making changes so that it runs Vue.js as well. So he's very open to seeing where this goes in the future. But I still can't say a thing against it. It's an app that is developing. It's not perfect in lots of weird, small ways. The Process behind it, the idea behind it is solid as a rock, and uh, yeah, I really, I'm really interested to see where it goes in the next year.
0: Very cool. And then you offhandedly mentioned GoCoEdit. Is that that's just like an
1: editor to write? code like textastic would be goko edit is my kind of go-to editor this year partly because it fits my workflow because it's got some really good preview functions within it one thing it's got a a live update so i can have a split view with goko edit on one side and safari on the other and every time i make a change and then save in goko edit safari will reload with that change automatically now that's a great time saver. It's it's kind of the, the default way of working when you're working on a desktop PC, but on an iOS device, this is pretty much unique in being able to do this. That's worked out really well for me. The interesting thing about goco edit is that again this is a like one person indie developer who has spent a huge amount of time and a huge amount of effort putting together this project now he's done it in a way that has allowed him to jump a lot of the other editors in a lot of feature sets and that's partly because he's used a lot of open source code so the main editor kind of comes from codemirror.js CodeMirror.js is a JavaScript-based editor that's used in code everywhere. It's used in Jupyter Notebooks. It's a very commercially aware and high-level editor, but it is running in JavaScript. So a lot of the interface in GoCoEdit is what you might call a little unusual But at the same time, if you can get past that, then it's incredibly powerful. And the the editor within it is spot on. When I'm looking for being able to autocomplete or auto-suggest code, then generally it's been as good as anything else that I've ever used on iOS.
0: And what exactly is Dash?
1: Dash is a way of getting all of those help manuals for all the different systems that you're using into one place imagine it as an empty ring binder and then you say i'm interested in php or i'm interested in react or i'm interested in any number of other systems and you can pretty much press a button and it will go away and download all of the documentation that it can find for those particular things so being able to walk away if you are on a train on a plane and have exactly what is the difference between slice and splice or what is the the conjugation of a string to lower in php then you have that with you
0: okay and it's not they're not just pdfs they're downloading in a more native format yeah
1: it, it's kind of searchable and it's uh, yeah it's it's a a really solid piece of ios programming okay and then draft code draft code is another id this one is actually targeted at php so imagine play.js but if you are building a php site i haven't done a lot of php in in a fairly long time but there's a huge amount of php out there and there's a lot of demand for this sort of a site so if you want to have a text editor that can then run a php server draft code is your first port of call okay and then terminus terminus is another terminal so i was talking earlier about prompt and blink yeah and terminus is actually a third terminal now it's particularly good if you are running a terminal over lots of different platforms so say you are also running a terminal on your desktop applications or you want to run it on multiple devices then it has a, a really good if slightly pricey subscription that means that you can sync all of those up and you can then add in a lot of extra features into it not least the fact that it's built beautifully. I mean, as an iOS program, it feels like it's a SSH terminal uh, editor for someone who actually really appreciates a a good iOS application, which is kind of interesting because when you look at the other side, when you look at Blink, Blink is built for people who really actually know how to use or or love to use a terminal editor. It kind of confused me for several days because you start up Blink and there is no Chrome at all. There's no expected sort of dialog boxes saying do you want to connect to any servers. It's just it's just a command line, and the the funny thing is, I almost I start had to start googling around before I realized that I had to have a keyboard attached and I had to hold down the command button you had those uh, keyboard shortcuts coming up at the front that i realized there actually were settings in it there were things that i could do within it but it's all hidden away because it is for the people who are really deeply in love with real command line it does not work with a virtual keyboard yeah uh it does okay but of course there's no uh command button on a virtual keyboard right <laughs> So i, I, I wonder how that it. got
0: through app store review that's amazing <laughs> that's
1: a good question Oh, and then the last one, Codex. Codex is uh, another text editor. I thought it deserved a mention because it's not fitting into any workflows that I currently have because it, it doesn't really connect up with working copy in a way that I like it to do. And it doesn't. It it is just a text editor. It doesn't have any extra features. It doesn't do a web server. It doesn't do SSH terminals. But it kind of really reminds me of Sublime Text when I started to use Sublime Text, however long ago, because it's just built in a really cool, nice way. For another indie developer, it's built in a way that is not cutting any corners. The auto-suggest auto-complete features are really good, just that the workflow within the, the app is spot on. And I thought it kind of deserved a shout out for that. And then anything we didn't cover that you'd like to before we wrap it up? Well, there was one which is a little bit of a left field one, which is the ability to run VS Code. Visual Studio Code is uh, Microsoft's big text editor. And it's kind of like now become the default text editor for a lot of web projects across any desktop platform you can mention. It was originally built on top of a fork of uh, GitHub Atom, which means it's essentially still built on web technologies. The front end is all HTML, CSS, JS, Canvas, WebGL, a whole load of web technologies. And the back end is really just an Electron server. That means that it can actually live on the web in a browser and you can then use it. Now, Microsoft actually have this as a, a beta product. It's called online.visualstudio.com. You can go and sign up and you can log into. The full Visual Studio Code uh, interface through your web browser. Now, it's still blocked within iPad at the moment. I'm not sure whether it's blocked in Safari because, of course, iPad is advertising itself as Safari. Right. But it is still unusable there. But because it's also open source with uh, this uh, new culture of uh, Microsoft, other people have taken that code base and componentized it so that you can install it on another server. I've tried it and you can install it on a VPS. You SSH into your VPS, you can start up the server, and then suddenly you can go to your web browser and you can do some real coding with Visual Studio Code. It's amazing, but the the downsides are real downsides. Currently, there's no way of having general shortcuts. So if you are used to being able to just doing uh, command seven to comment things out, that's not available. You also have to figure out how you're going to get your content into the project and then out of the project. The downsides are, are there that it's not. It's a workflow that I've kind of gone cool on for a bit. The interesting thing about it is that it kind of suggests a new future for how we could do this. Now, if anyone could lean on Apple and say, there's a couple of things that iOS could really do with to be a great developer system, then Microsoft would be that person to actually lean on Apple and actually commit them them to that, that course of action. I'm kind of hoping, because it's not just blind hope with the release notes of visual code studio then they do keep mentioning that the ui has been tested in ipad and they are updating and they are clarifying and they are correcting things hmm. so they have people within microsoft who are testing this massive code editor that can do everything and nothing and they are using ipads within microsoft to do that so that sounds like a really uh, positive note to end on actually
0: yeah that would be really cool. Formally got yeah, pushed out and supported, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for kind of diving into all this. It's kind of fascinating learning about this world. It's something that I've only dabbled in on some like, WordPress sites, but this is a very big world in development, uh, web development. So thank you so much. Oh, you're kidding. No, it was a real pleasure. And for people that want to dive into your article, I think if you just search, you know, your search engine of choice, FB Web Dev on iPad 2019, you'll find it. Yeah,
1: that's right. It's on uh, Medium. So if you just look for iPad Web Dev uh, 2019, then, then you'll find it.
0: Yep. And I'll link it in the show notes as well as a way to get to it nice and quick. Cool. And then is that the best place for people to kind of find were you right on medium through finding this article and then kind of seeing what else you've done there
1: yeah i think we've briefly had conversations in the past about i have uh, fairly strong opinions about keyboards for ipads and things so yes. uh, yeah you'll, you'll probably find <laughs> other things there as well
0: excellent and then is there a twitter that you'd like people to follow you on
1: uh, my twitter is i'm kind of splitting it in between my my regular stuff which is pixel thing uh, and uh, my data work which is at it's a data thing. Cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for for your time today, Craig. Really appreciate it. Are you kidding? No, it's uh, been a pleasure.
0: Well, that was my interview with Craig all about front-end web development on the iPad. Thanks again to Craig for his time recording this and sharing all of his knowledge about web development with us. It was really fascinating learning more about this topic. So, with that said, as a reminder, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you haven't already That would just be really appreciated if you could just spend a couple minutes doing that today. You can find the show notes at ipadpros.net. You can send me an email with any feedback you have at ipadprospodcast at gmail.com. With that said, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of iPad Pros. Thank you for your time and attention, and I'll talk to everyone again real soon.